Section 19 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9. Romilly's Part 2. On the news of the wonderful result of the Battle of Romilly's, the Emperor Joseph, with enthusiastic gratitude, had written to Marlborough, appointing him in the name of the Archduke Charles, Governor of Brabant. The post was both honourable and lucrative, and Marlborough would gladly have accepted it. The English government also wished him to do so, but he soon found out that even his warmest friends amongst the Dutch would bitterly resent it. Success brought out all the selfish and jealous feelings of the Dutch, and they looked out only for reaping advantages and new territory for themselves. As Marlborough wrote, such is their temper, that when they have misfortunes they are desirous of peace upon any terms, and when we are blessed by God with success, they are for turning it to their own advantage, without any consideration how it may be liked by their friends and allies. At last it was agreed that a provisional government in the name of Charles should be established in the Netherlands, and that the administration should be shared by Holland and England. In Italy, the tide of war had at last turned, and in the midst of his own triumph, Marlborough was gladdened by the news of an equally brilliant success won by Prince Eugène. The campaign had opened dismally. The Duke of Savoy was so hard-pressed that it was impossible for him to take any steps to relieve Turin, which was firmly enclosed on all sides by the enemy's lines. But when Vendôme was summoned to the Netherlands, the French army was left under the less able command of Villars and the Duke of Orléans. Prince Eugène had at last got together the troops with which he was coming to the aid of the Duke of Savoy. Through mountainous tracks, which had been hitherto considered impassable by any army, he marched upon Turin. The Duke of Savoy regained hope by his presence, and together they attacked the French army, though it was stronger in numbers and entrenched in a secure position. The French were entirely routed and driven away from Turin on September 7th, and Eugène and the Duke of Savoy entered the town in triumph. The French were driven from Piedmont, and the beginning of the next year saw the whole of North Italy in the hands of the Allies. But the selfish aims of Austria produced difficulties here, as the selfish aims of Holland produced difficulties in the Netherlands. Austria thought only of securing her own possessions in Italy, without considering the interests of the Duke of Savoy, and the other allies complained bitterly of the want of care shown by the Emperor for the common cause. Marlborough received the news of the victory of Turin with the greatest joy. It is impossible for me, he wrote to the Duchess, to express the joy it has given me, for I do not only esteem but I really loved that prince. The news from Spain was of a less pleasing kind. Louis the Fourteenth had determined to make a great effort to win back what had been lost in 1705, and Philip V led a large army to recover Barcelona, whilst the town was at the same time blockaded by a French fleet. It seemed as if it must be lost, for Peterborough had not sufficient forces to oppose the French. But just at the last moment, an English fleet appeared in sight, and Philip was forced to raise the siege and retire to Madrid. 
Neither could he stay long in Madrid, but was forced to fly before the Confederate army from the west under Galway and the Portuguese general Daminas. It seemed as if at last Spain was wrested from the Bourbons and was safe in the hands of the Allies. But here the tide turned. Galway wished Charles to press forward at once and make his entry into Madrid. But Charles wanted to enter in state and said he must wait till his carriage was ready. This delay was fatal, for the inhabitants of Madrid were strongly in favor of Philip, and Galway soon found it impossible to hold the town for a king who could not trouble himself to come and take possession of it. He marched from Madrid to join the army of Charles, and Berwick with the French army entered as he left it. Philip V was growing extremely popular amongst the Spaniards, and his misfortunes had made them still more zealous for his cause. Berwick's army was swelled daily by new recruits, whilst the Allied army dwindled from sickness and desertion, and the Allies, though they had too few soldiers, had too many generals. There were constant disputes and jealousies between Galway, Daminas, Peterborough, and Charles and his Austrians. Peterborough was imperious and self-willed. He had no feelings of respect to curb his arrogant tongue, and continually offended Charles by his violent speeches. Everyone wrote complaints to England and to Marlborough, and the recall of Peterborough was urgently pressed. Peterborough himself was weary of a position which did not give him the authority he desired, and at last availed himself of a permission that had been given him when he left England to go on to Italy and collect supplies for the Duke of Savoy. The Allies in Spain thus lost their one really able general, whose brilliant qualities, however, were rendered comparatively useless by his arrogance and flightiness. The Allies retired before Berwick into Valencia, where they took up their winter quarters. The old jealousies of the rival kingdoms made Aragon, Valencia, and Catalonia jealous for the cause of Charles, just because Castile favored Philip. On the Rhine the campaign had produced no results. The Margrave of Baden was sinking under a mortal disease, which increased his naturally stubborn and jealous temper. The French general Villars had hoped to signalize himself by some brilliant exploit, but his forces were so much weakened by the continual draft of troops to reinforce the army in the Netherlands that he was forced to content himself with remaining on the defensive. The prosperity of the Allies reached its highest point in this year, 1706. Louis XIV had suffered so severely on all sides, France was so terribly exhausted by the drain made upon it by the war, that he was led to make preliminary overtures of peace to the Dutch. The terms offered were the formation of a strong barrier in the Netherlands for the Dutch, the recognition of Queen Anne, the cession of Spain, the Indies, and the Spanish Netherlands to the Archduke Charles, on condition that Milan and the two Sicilies should be formed into a kingdom for Philip, and considerable commercial advantages to England and Holland. The Dutch were strongly inclined for peace, and these terms seemed to them all that could be desired. Marlborough thought that the French asked for too much in Italy, and that Milan certainly could not be conceded to them. He was himself anxious to continue the war, as his enemy said, 
from his desire for the large income he received as commander-in-chief, but as he himself said repeatedly in his private as well as his official letters that he thought another successful campaign was necessary to procure a safe, honorable, and lasting peace. He prevailed so far with Hensius and his other friends at The Hague that the proposal of France to open conferences for the negotiation of peace was rejected. Preparations were therefore made on all sides for the next campaign. By the light of after events, it certainly seems as if the Allies would have done wisely to conclude a peace on the terms offered by Louis the Fourteenth. Their affairs were never so prosperous again, and the terms they ultimately obtained after the enormous expenditure of men and money involved in several years more fighting are insignificant when compared with those now suggested. Whilst busy directing the campaign, Marlborough had as usual been actively engaged in diplomatic matters. The English government was anxious to get from the foreign powers a guarantee of the Protestant succession. Negotiations for this purpose were first of all opened with the Dutch, and Marlborough offered that in return England would promise to secure to the Dutch as safe a barrier as they could desire. This question of a barrier always excited the grasping spirit of the Dutch. Their demands were so exorbitant that the jealousy of Austria was aroused, for all that was taken to form a barrier for Holland must be taken from the Spanish Netherlands, the dominions of the Archduke Charles, and after much weary correspondence which only served to inflame bitter feelings on all sides, nothing was settled. The Duke of Marlborough reached London on his return from The Hague on the 18th November. He received the solemn thanks of both Houses of Parliament, who lauded his exploits in the most enthusiastic terms. They spoke of Romilly's as a victory so great and glorious in its consequences, and attended with such continued successes through the whole course of this year that no age can equal. The war was still so popular that the necessary supplies for the next campaign were voted without any opposition. As a substantial mark of the national gratitude, the House of Lords petitioned the Queen to continue by act of Parliament Marlborough's title and honours to his daughters and their heirs male, as he had no son to inherit his name. It was also ordained at Marlborough's special request that the manor of Woodstock and the house of Blenheim should always go with the title after the death of the Duchess on whom it had been settled for life. Further, to celebrate the successes of the campaign, a procession was arranged to convey the colours and standards taken at Romilly's from Whitehall to Guildhall. The procession passed through St. James's Park, and the Queen appeared at one of the windows of the palace to do it honour. It was followed by the Duke himself in one of the royal coaches, attended by a magnificent train of carriages filled with the foreign ministers and nobility. The streets were crowded by the enthusiastic people, and followed by their joyful shouts, Marlborough pursued his way to Vintner's Hall, where the mayor and common council entertained him at a magnificent banquet. End of section 19